welcome to Unlimited Partners, a podcast on partnership. I'm your host, Thomas McGannon. I'm an investor on a journey to understand what makes great partnerships. This podcast is my way of recording that process and sharing it. In an episode of the Tim Ferriss podcast earlier this year, Tim asked his guest, financial writer and philosopher Morgan Housel, to highlight a few exceptional investors. He said, Lots of listeners will be familiar with Brent Bishore, who's very active on Twitter, as well as an incredibly successful investor. He won't say that, he will deny that, but he really is. And he too is just one of the nicest, kindest, funniest people who I've ever met. And most of the time, when he and I talk, it's nothing about business. We just talk about life and our kids and our spouses and whatnot. I won't quote the rumored returns that I've heard about Brent's performance as a capital allocator, but if you cut them in half, they'd still be world-class. Brent Bishore invests in relatively small, traditional brick-and-mortar companies doing a few million dollars in earnings. His firm, Permanent Equity, has become one of the premier buyers of family-owned businesses. Their strategy is simple to describe, but exceptionally difficult to execute. The key is that their process starts and ends with how you treat people. And now my conversation with Brent Bishore. Before we get into today's conversation, I need to give a shout out to some of our sponsoring partners. Unlimited Partners is brought to you by Tegas. It's fair to say that I built my technology investing career on the Tegas platform. Since joining as a beta customer back in 2017, I've personally conducted hundreds of primary expert interviews, and I've read or listened to more than 10 times that many using their searchable on-demand transcript database. I simply couldn't imagine making an investment or critical business decision without consulting the knowledge that's captured in their platform. So whether you're a professional investor, corporate development executive, or just someone who's looking for expert insights, give Tegas a try by visiting tegas.com. If you'd like to receive more Unlimited Partners content, then please sign up for our private podcast feed. You can do that by visiting our website or by hitting us up with a Twitter DM. We plan to use this feed for releasing longer form, uncut episodes, live recordings, and experiments with the types of interviews and content that we produce. This is the legal disclaimer part. Unlimited Partners is not investing advice. The host and members of Unlimited Partners may have a position in the securities discussed. Please do your own research. And now my conversation with Brent Bishore. Well, I've been looking forward uh, to the conversation. Thanks, yeah, for, dude, thanks for taking the absolutely. time. Absolutely. The reason that I'm doing it is is kind of born out of a frustration that that I've been experiencing where factually speaking, the world is 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 getting better. Um, you know, people are living longer, uh econ- economic tides are rising, you know, infant mortality is 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 improving. And 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 I and when I you know, you've got children, I've got children i feel like that should make a happier more joyful world but it but it yeah. just it it, it it hasn't we've we've mm. managed to make progress on paper but still have a, a lot of of us um searching for meaning i just kind of feel like the the blessing of of the opportunity to invest the the meaning that you a are in a situation where you have resources or b you get this wonderful job where you get to allocate resources. It's just, I just don't see it being done with the level of joy and enthusiasm 
and appreciation that I feel like I try to practice it, it with. And so starting to have some of the conversations that give me a lot of energy and, and recording them and, and seeing if there are people out there that, that may also find uh, similar resonance. It's just, it's just kind of something that I feel like I, I need, I need to do for myself just to kind of get it off my chest. So thank you so much for, for talking with me. I've, well, I'm excited about it too. Totally. Um, I think that I, I said that I wanted to kick it off with this reference to a Cal Ripken Jr. monologue, I suppose, and I'll, I'll include this in the, in the show notes where he, he talks about what it meant for him to play his entire career at Baltimore. And, and when he requested the no trade clause, he said, in return, I say I'm yours every day, every game. And I, I know what it's like to, to make and receive commitment where you, you know that no matter what, you have each other's back. That kind of structure, uh, that permanence gives me the ability to, to express a lot of freedom and to, to really like give it my all to be the best version of myself. And, it, and when I think about that personal experience and relating that to investing, my mind like immediately, <laughs> immediately goes because it's, it's the same word, permanent equity. It immediately goes to you and what you're working to build. I'd love to hear something of the founding story, like when for you this concept of, of permanence came into the foreground. You've talked about how you initially asked for 50 year term and somebody said, well, that's never happened before. And you said, well, like, okay, fine. What's the longest you've ever heard of 30 years. Great. That's what I want. When did, when did you discover that as what I now think is your superpower? Well, I like most things in my life. Um, it, it's by accident. I mean, I, I, I joke often that I'm the Forrest Gump of private equity and that uh, I have uh, driven the clown car into the gold mine and, 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 or fallen backwards into this thing. And, and, and really, I think it was from first principles. I mean, we, it wasn't like I set out and said, okay, how are we going to design, you know, a firm that, that believes all these things. It was just really like, how else do we want to live? And the idea that, um, you would put an artificial deadline on really all your relationships baffled me. I mean, if you think about traditional private equity, it's all about a sprint. You, you buy a company, um, you, you use max debt typically, and you tell everyone, hey, we're going to go and sprint on this thing for, you know, a year to four years. Um, and everyone's rewarded on the outcome of that sprint. And so, you, you, you know, all the relationships, the relationship with the company, the relationship with the executives, really all of it has an expiration date that's sort of predetermined and, and arbitrary. There's no reason why the relationship should have an expiration date that, that's, you know, a year or four years or five years or 10 years. I mean, so I think from, from early on, it was, look, if, if, if we could design the system, it would just be, why don't we just do what makes the most sense? Like, which is not put an expiration date on relationships or on companies or on investments and just do whatever makes the most sense at the time. Um, and I think that there's a little bit of a difference. Some people interpret our, uh, and we say explicitly, this is not true, but interpret it to say, okay, we'll never sell an investment. And that's not true. Um, and I think that, that inherently there's a, there's a hubris and a, a pridefulness about saying something like that because there's some very good reasons to, to sell. I mean, there's some, um, some great reasons to sell. I mean, we, we, you know, joke sometimes with sellers when they'll say, Oh, well, you're never planning on selling my company. They'll say, well, wait a minute. Is there something wrong with selling? Well, yeah, I don't want you to sell my company. Okay, great. Um, why are you selling your company then? 
they're like, well, well, it's different. You know, I started the thing. It's like, great. I'm, are there some good reasons to sell and are there some bad reasons to sell? Sure. And, and, and like I said, are there good reasons to, to have long-term relationships? Of course. I mean, compounding in trust and in uh, relationship is the most beautiful thing, far more powerful and beautiful than compounding financially. And yet some relationships aren't meant to last a lifetime. There are seasons for relationships. And so I think that what we want is, is a system that allows us to have maximum optionality and to treat people really well as a result of that and encourage the best of ourselves, not the worst of ourselves. To what extent do you take it like an active role coaching people to think in that longer time horizon? It's highly relational and we want to be highly relational. Um, we want to support people and care for people. And, and when the opportunity presents itself, not just be fair to people, which by the way, in private equity, uh, gosh, that's like a 10 out of 10. If you can just be fair to people, I mean, you know, if you can just not be a shark, um, that seems to be a, uh, <laughs> seems to be a rarity. It's crazy. Um, you know, I think, like, I think, yeah, I think comparatively, yeah, that's just like a two out of 10 on the scale of, of humanity though. And I think that's where, you know, look, if I was going to say, how do we do it at permanent equity? I would say, we've got a lot of room to grow. We can treat people way better than how we've treated them. And, um, we certainly want to learn how to, how to be better. Um, but we're trying and we're on a path, I think, to doing that. One of the goals that, that I certainly have, and I know a lot of others do as well, executing here is hard, but is, is to have a, a portfolio of, of founders and entrepreneurs and managers that, actually looks like the world we live in. Your firm uh, is predominantly women-led, which I think is really cool, a great highlight of you know, actions and, and use words when necessary. Could you talk about the mindset that you had when you started uh, out of the gate and that you've continued to grow in terms of what kind of a team that it is you're building, how you bring diverse uh, mindsets to the organization? Well, I love, I think I'm just drawn to, um, having a, a diverse set of opinions. I mean, I don't know how you, how you'd see the complexity of reality without having a lot of people around you that think differently and have different beliefs than you do. And, and ultimately there needs to be some shared foundation. I think diversity of, of intellectual thought and, and how you think through things is, is incredibly important. So, I mean, yes, we, the result of that is we have a staff that is, in, in every way, but racially, which is, which is actually really interesting and something that, you know, I, I, I don't want to shy away from in every way, but racially very diverse. And we would love it to be racially diverse as well. Um, but in religious background, in upbringing, in, in where they're born and raised in their family backgrounds and in levels of affluence as they grew up, um, in political beliefs, in, um, in certainly obviously gender, uh, it, we are very, very diverse. Um, and I love it. Um, Columbia, Missouri, where I live is, is the same way. It's very diverse. It's a, it's a very weirdly diverse place in a, uh, sea of homogeny, um, which is fantastic. A lot of these things are designed by intention and by principle, but not by outcome. So there's no, if you use gender as an example, there's no woman on staff who's here because she's a woman. Um, they're here because they were the best person for the job and they happen to be a woman. Do you think that that works? Like, like, like I was talking with a manager the other day who says the first thing that he does when he receives a list of companies to potentially invest in is he, he deletes the the name of the, the founder. Like he doesn't want to know and just evaluates on the merits of, of the deal. That's going to probably just like reinforce like your, your average profile is probably going to look like the average profile of the market. Uh, have you had to take extra steps 
to achieve that gender diversity. And as you kind of reflect on maybe a desire to have more racial diversity, like what, what do you think is, is a, is potentially like a good practice to have in seeking out those potential partners? Well, when I say it's the best person for the job, I, I don't mean to imply, and I think that's, it's great that you brought up the the example of the, the other gentleman who, you know, removes the names off. I, I would say that if you remove somebody's name off, you've re- removed their gender. If you remove their background, like you're removing some of their qualifications for how they're going to, how they're going to do and what the, what they're going to add to the mix of the team. So I would say the exact opposite is I like, I want to know everything about the person. Um, I want to know, I want to go deep with them in life philosophy and I want to, I want to talk to them about their hopes and their dreams and where do they see brokenness in this world and what do they want to fix and what are they pissed off about and what are they excited about? And, and look like we bring our whole selves, like we would encourage everyone in our office to bring your whole self to work. This whole, like, you know, leave your home life at home. Like that's garbage. Like, like we should bring our whole selves to work. We should be fully known and fully present, um, with each other. That's what real relationships based on. So you know, for, for, for somebody to say, I'm going to take your femininity or your masculinity, and I'm going to put it off to the side because that has no bearing on your, you know, your, your role in the company. That's like garbage. Um, and I think that, that we have people when I, when I meant to say that, you know, we're not selecting a woman for a role. What I meant to say was there's no one on, on staff who, who is like, oh, well they weren't, they weren't very good for the job, but they happen to be a woman. Yeah. Right. Like that's not like, that's not cool. (laughs) No one wants to be that, that person. Right. Um, and so what I would say is we absolutely have hired people because we thought for the mix of the team, for the, uh, intellectual diversity for who they are and what they brought to the table. I mean, just the fact that they're a woman is a, is a very narrow slice of who they are. I mean, it's a prominent slice, but it's a narrow slice. We want to bring people with a diversity of backgrounds and opinions and, and just how they're thinking about the world and how they see the world to the table. And, and, And that includes all of who they are. We certainly want to sharpen each other and that sharpening comes through friction and that friction comes through differences. We want to celebrate those differences. These are, yeah, I, I, I think that makes a, a ton of sense. Could you talk to me about, about like the role of community in, in, in your life? Because I think that, you know, I'll be coming to Columbia, Missouri here in a little over a month to go to Capitol Camp. I can't, I can't wait for it. I would love to just kind of hear you expound on the role that, that community plays and how you can continue to grow this as, as an asset, because last I checked, like, I I don't know of anybody else that's pulling the kind of folks to Columbia, Missouri, like, like you do that does, it does seem to be perhaps one of your other superpowers. I mean, community for, for me is everything. Like, I mean, we, I think we were designed by God to be in community with one another and it's heartbreaking. I mean, obviously what happened with COVID and, and, you know, it furthered trends and isolation and, and, and really like, you know, social media, ironically with, with social being in the title, um, has led, I think, you know, through many, many studies and obviously just through gut feeling that I think we all have through, you know, greater isolation. And I think that's heartbreaking. Like I, um, Gosh, community. I, I I can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't have people who would speak into my life and who would encourage me and slap me around when I needed it, uh, which is quite often, and who would speak truth to me and love me well. Um, and I don't see that a lot, especially in the finance world. And certainly, you know, at permanent equity, I don't want it to make it out to something we're not. I mean, look, we're a private equity firm. Um, we try to do things differently. We try to do things redemptively. Um, we try to treat people as people. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're still a firm. We're still a company. Like, we're, you know, I don't want to 
give too much woo-woo vibes here, but community is crazy important. I mean, I wanted to create a place at Permanent Equity where I wanted to work, and I am thrilled to come to work. I mean, everyone has their bad days here and there, but man, like I, I get so excited to come into the office. Um, we were actually talking about, I think before we hit record, about you know, hey, Brent, are you working at home most of the time or at the office? I'm like, I'm in the office, but not because I have to be. I mean, nothing's going to break if I'm not here. I just love the people. And I want to, you know, hire people that I enjoy being around and who genuinely can care for one another, not because we're all the same, but because we are different and because we care for each other and we try to support each other and help each other. Um, and I'd say that extends far beyond the walls of this office. I mean, Capital Camp was Patrick O'Shaughnessy and I's, you know, co-vision of what would it look like to try to build real community amongst the finance uh, industry. And I think, I mean, people, you'll have to tell me what you think after, after you attend this, this year, but I mean, we've had people come up to the past and say, this feels completely different than anything I've ever been to. Why? Because I think that it's an emphasis on people as people, (laughs) not as a checkbook, not as a means to an end, but just genuinely telling people, Hey, take off as much of your mask as you possibly can. Like, right. Like, like not just let it slip, but like throw it on the ground and just be honest and truthful. And like, what are you struggling with? What do you, what do you love? What, you know, share your hopes and your dreams. Like what are the things that you want to be fully known right about, um, be fully known, like let people see you and have you see them. And I think that's what community is all about. I mean, we have an incredible faith community here in Columbia. Uh, we're part of a church here in town. That's just, it's astoundingly wonderful. Um, not, not perfect, certainly not perfect. Um, but, but absolutely wonderful. And, um, look, we have a, we have an incredible group of people that, I mean, we're, and I'm in a Friday morning men's group. My wife and I are in a couple's group together. Um, we just, we were just so blessed with, with rich, deep community. And I just can't imagine life doing life without it. I mean, life is hard for everyone. Like even the most wealthy, privileged, uh, you know, easy quote unquote life that anybody would look at. You ask that person, have you had an easy life? And no one would say yes. No one. Life is, life is intentionally hard. Um, life is difficult for everyone. And I can't imagine doing it w- without community. My grandmother has a line that she shares. Uh, so I, my, my dad's older brother was killed in a car accident uh, shortly after graduating from, from high school. He was hit by a drunk driver. And then a couple of years later, my grandfather, just after retiring and moving down to Florida, was, was, was also killed by a, a drunk driver. And a priest told my grandmother, uh, you know, Mary, at its best, life is difficult. I, 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 I think about that often when, when I have what thank God have been like pretty nominal challenges, there will be hard times ahead. I will have broken bones. I will have like true adversity and that day is going to come, but damn it, it's not today. And, and I, I think that that's really something worth celebrating. Um, one of the, one of the things that I, I, that I personally struggle with is, is trying to figure out like what, what problems that I should run towards because they're actually opportunities and what problems are just, you know, sinkholes. Um, how do you think about either from an investing perspective, which, you know, as you've talked about companies are just people. So this really is a a people question, but how do you think about differentiating between the problems that you want to run towards because there's value and meaning to be gained versus stuff that's just really going to sap energy and, and resources. Yeah. I mean, I think that I found an area that I, that I love. I mean, I love what I do for a living. Um, I plan on doing for the rest of my life and it's incredibly rewarding, which is to, to take family owned businesses, 
that um, need to be stewarded in the future and, and helping helping be the trustee of those. I mean, I can't imagine a, a, a better way to make a living. Like it's just a beautiful thing. And it's obviously it's hard. As you said, everything's difficult. And um, by the way, I'm really sorry to hear about your, your family struggles. It's amazing um, how I didn't know that about your family. And we've gotten checked quite a, quite a bit in the past and how, as you get to know somebody, the, the family history of, of, of pain and struggle and uh, heartache informs who they are and informs their perspective. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it, it creates a richness to the relationship. And I'm, I'm glad you shared that. And I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry your family went through that. My, my family had, uh, my mom's sister was killed in a uh, car accident, uh, when she was 16 and, uh, it's, it's put a, uh, a fracture into the family. Uh, this lasted generations, uh, tragically. And so I, I understand the, the pain and the suffering that comes from that. And I just love the fact that that has, shaped your opinion and who you are and, and, and how you look at life. And, um, I can't remember who said this, but like, there's only two ways to look at life. Like everything's a miracle or nothing's a miracle. And I feel like that's the, when I, when I think about the being around you, Thomas, like you seem to just look at life with like a, like a, and I say this in the best way, this is a, this is a huge compliment, like a childlike awe that everything's a miracle. You know, I think that that, that same, you know, sort of mentalities that it's what I'm aspiring to. And when I think about the challenges of what to get involved in and what not to get involved in, a lot of it comes down to, do I just feel led into the, into the opportunity or not? And as a team, do we feel like this is somewhere where we want to put our energy and really commit for the long term? I mean, we're, we're buying with no intention of selling the business, which means, you know, we are, we are, we are trying to have, and we do have a, a mentality of uh, sort of perpetual investment and ongoing relationship. And so that is, as we talked about earlier in the conversation, uh, it's a burden. It's, it, it's difficult to, uh, to make that commitment. You know, I think the only way you can do it is just to look at all the facts and, and look at where you are and who they are and say, Hey, is, are these people that we want to pour into? And is this an area that we feel like that we're, we're called into? And oftentimes the answer is no, we say no to almost everything. And occasionally we say yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I don't know that it's a very satisfying answer for a lot of people, but, um, I, 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 at the end of the day, like you do just kind of have to, to, to listen to yourself, to, to kind of pay attention to the way that I've talked about it the last year and change is follow the green lights. Um, I don't know if you read the Matthew McConaughey, um, autobiography, but, but as he kind of reflected on following the green lights, like it, which, you know, just, it's, it's, it might come across to a certain extent as like a, a maybe, um, uh, a little bit of like, just do what feels good. Like it's very, not that, like you have to evaluate yourself, uh, in the, the wholeness and like over the fullness of time. Um, but I have found that, um, by trusting my, 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 my feelings and, and, and really leaning into what I find are my strengths and like kind of giving up on improving some of my weaknesses or at least finding ways to ring fence them so that they don't end up being more problematic than they need to be. That, 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 that ends up being a pretty fruitful, a pretty fruitful, uh, framework. So one of the, the things that I, I absolutely know about you is that you, you love what you, you do. And I, I imagine that, uh, and I know that you, you also mentor a lot of people. And I think that probably more often than not, people reach out to you 
for mentoring because because they want to be wealthy, like because they want they want to have financial success the way that that they, that you have. But I I think that um, your success that you've had to date is not about the focus of of financial resources. Like the inputs that you're focusing on don't have to do with necessarily making money. They have to do with helping companies be the best version of themselves. And, the, and just the natural outcome there is is that they are, are, are more profitable. One of the topics that I've been thinking a lot about is like focus on the inputs and the outputs take care of, of themselves. How do you think about helping people find the inputs that they need to be focused on? Boy, that's I mean, this is the deep water and this is <laughs> maybe the deepest of waters. I mean, the the thing you got to figure out is like, what's the game you're playing? And I think a terrifying thing for me would be winning at the wrong game. And I think that, look, I've been playing playing games for almost 40 years now. And a lot of the games I've been playing are the wrong game to play. And I think over time, just a gift that I've been given is to see a bigger and bigger game. And oftentimes when I ask somebody who's coming to me for advice on you know, I want to start a hold co or I want to start buying small companies, or maybe I just want to start buying one small company. You know, my first question to them is just, what are you optimizing for? And I would say almost no one very rarely does somebody have a good answer to that. They really have never thought about it that way. I think that we get so goal driven that there's a goal induced blindness that results from it. And, and I suffer from this. And I think, you know, when you think about what inputs do I want to have? Gosh, I, I have to remind myself every morning. In fact, I have a, uh, a very private sort of, um, smelling salts cheat sheet for me every morning that I go through. And it's what I, what I have to remind myself of is the reality that I don't feel on a day-to-day basis but that the reality is there and that that is the true reality of this world and this life. And, you know, I think deep by default, and, and I think the world screams at us that we're make, make ourselves gods, right? Like we're going to live forever. We need to build ourselves. We need to accumulate. We need to um, gain as much as we can, right? Like sort of this naked self-ambition that is uh, really celebrated in our culture. Um, and what I found, and I found this in my late 20s, and I can still struggle to today with it. I think it's the thorn in my flesh that I'm going to carry for the rest of my life is, man, that's, that seems so attractive to me in the moment, right? It seems so, uh, so desirable to build myself into something more, to gain more, to gain more praise and notoriety and money and glory for myself. And man, it just ends in ruin. And this is not complicated. I mean, Jim Carrey has, by the way, some of the best quotes on this, right? He's like, I hope everyone can. Oh, I've been, I've, I've been saying this. This is, I, that's so wild that you're going to bring up Jim Carrey, man. I, this is, I know exactly what you're going to say. And I've, I've quoted this at least five times in the last week. I'm not making that up at all. Well, it's because we're just vibing. We're like your brother from a different mother. Um, so we, I mean, Jim Carrey's quotes around, like, I hope everyone would, uh, get all their hopes and dreams fulfilled to realize that's not the thing. I mean, man, you, you, you listen to somebody say like that and you, I mean, Jim Carrey is, you know, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars in net worth and gets into every room and invited to every party. And, and it's, it's kind of like, a, it's, it's Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, this is the Solomon, the beauty of, of Solomon telling us, like, I have, I have done all the things that the hearts of people want, right? I have all the vineyards, I have all the desires fulfilled and it's all chasing after the wind, right? It's all for naught. Um, 
And I think that's to, to have somebody be able to tell us that because we, we always have this view of the world, or at least I have, maybe I'm not going to try to generalize to everyone, but I think it's a universal thing where y- you always want to get into the rooms you can't get into. You always want to wonder what was what's happening in the rooms that you're not in. Um, what would it be like if I had, you know, <laughs> more money, better friends, more experiences, whatever the thing is, taste better food. Gosh, what would it look like if, if, if I got all those things or even got that one thing, right? These are the, these are the idols, right? These are the good things that we make into ultimate things. And they're always unfulfilled and unfulfilling. And when you actually achieve them and you get them, you, you sort of go through these periods of, of real trouble and disappointment because it's like the dog that catches the car, and you're like, oh man, like this is not at all what I'd hoped it to be. And then you realize you were playing the wrong game. So I think, you know, to go back to your original question, like 10 minutes ago, um, I just want to put inputs in, in my life that make me realize what the ultimate reality is, which is, uh, look, I'm, I, I was created for a purpose. Um, I am loved and uh, my future is secure. And then I can't lose. Um, then I can just go to work and I can love people and serve people and give generously. And, um, that's the reality that I know is true, even though I don't feel it most days. It's really interesting that the, the quote about, um, or the quote by Jim Carrey, um, I, I've, I've had an intra generational experience. Like I've introduced myself often as a basement apartment kid of divorced parents. And, and I just like, it's why I have this kind of childlike view because I'm just like, Holy shit. Like, how did I, how did I get so lucky? Like, how do I have a, a beautiful wife that like really loves me? How do I have four healthy, strong boys? Like, how do I have this really nice house that I don't like worry about how I make these, these, these payments? It's sort of, there was a, uh, GK Chesterton <clears throat> quote about, um, you know, wondering like why a griffin or like maybe a unicorn doesn't exist. I'm getting this totally wrong, but the essence is here. But we don't wonder at with awe at the fact that a rhinoceros does, and it really looks like it shouldn't. Like that's those practical miracles are are something that I'm I'm very lucky that 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 I can sustain that that kind of like oh gee wow this this is so cool. Um, uh, drinking a few beers at night and just bouncing a one year old on my lap sure as, as heck helps. But but the reality is that I do best when when I have some discomfort. Like there's a, a Steve. Prefontaine quote of, you know, it's not about who's the best, it's, it's who can endure the most pain. And I think that there's some truth to that. I think that there is some some reality that that if you can find something, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a cousin of find what's play for you and work for others. Like find the thing that you can just go an extra step further than anyone else. Hey, everybody, we're going to take a quick break to hear from my good friend, Courtney Hope, founder of My Marketplace Builder a a software-as-a-service platform powering many of the next-generation marketplace ideas. Let's talk about My Marketplace Builder. Courtney, what is My Marketplace Builder? So My Marketplace Builder is SaaS software for making marketplaces. With our software, you can get any kind of marketplace idea, whether it's product, service, or rental. Get on the site, sign up for a free trial, and start taking transactions as quickly as the next day. The other uh, part of the marketplace that we do is we also do customizations. So anything from first-time entrepreneurs all the way to Fortune 100 companies, we can go through and we can customize any pieces that you want from our featured library that has hundreds and hundreds and 
and hundreds of different kinds of features to choose from too. That's awesome. One of my favorite parts about working with you and, and researching your business is when I get to listen to your customer conversations. Can you talk about some of the customers that you guys work with? Yeah, and that's something that's really exciting to us, the different kinds of marketplace ideas that people come up with. It, it, it really is the future of the world right now. Exactly how Shopify did it with the e-commerce world where people needed to go through and sell their stuff online. We're doing that with the marketplace spots. We have anything from crawfish sourcing uh, for restaurants all the way up to 18 wheeler parts to working with companies like Goodwill. And there's no limits to how you want to grow your marketplace and how do you want to do it or what your marketplace idea is. So the website is mymarketplacebuilder.com. If you have a marketplace idea, then please go check them out. Thanks so much, Courtney. We'll look forward to hearing more from you later this season. Yeah, I can't wait, Thomas. Thank you. With the businesses that you buy, you've talked a lot about how hard these companies are. I mean, if you're going to buy a business for three times cash flow, and it, man, that like that's in theory a 33% rate of return, like that's that's unbelievable. But um, achieving achieving that on a sustained basis is hard to, to to damn near impossible. How do you think about? Like you said, you've had a lot of people come to you that that see the the spreadsheet math of what you're doing and think it's really compelling but I don't think that there's much awareness, myself included. Like I've talked to you about managers that we'd want to invest in and, and employing similar strategies. What is it that's really hard about the strategy that you guys are pursuing? Any stories to kind of give give context and understanding would be awesome. Yeah, it, it, um, it is hard. It is, it is brutally difficult. I mean, to be honest, buying one business and running it well is more difficult than you can imagine if you've never done it. The reality just smacks you in the face all day long. I mean, I've, I've joked in the past that, you know, running a company is like, in a, you know, being in a knife fight on a daily basis. Like you just get out of bed and try not to get stabbed and then get back into bed and try to get enough rest to do it all over again tomorrow. And it really does feel like that. I mean, it feels like there's just things are coming at you all the time from all different places, competitive pressure, um, employees getting into, to, you know, horrible personal situations that affect their, their life. I mean, marriages disintegrating, children dying. Um, we've had CEOs pass away unexpectedly. We've had, um, you know, we put people through rehab. We have all manners of people stealing from us and, you know, offices walking out and going to competitors and all these things are, are, are in the backdrop and context of, of, of we trying to be kind and supportive and we're trying to have healthy people and look, it's hard. Life is difficult. It seems to be the recurring theme. Um, it doesn't get any easier. I mean that the messiness multiplies. It is, is a compounding of messiness. And so everything's hard. I would say the very few things are easy. And and when it feels easy, it means you either got lucky uh, or you've never done it. And that's very rarely the case. What layer do you try and help as a manager of permanent equity? I'd just love to kind of hear like, what's the layer that you feel like is most productive for you to engage in? How do you think about the layer that you need to get involved and then making sure that the the downstream is is calibrated the way that 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 you want it it's a great question uh it's something i struggle with to be open with you about it i i have an interventionalist sort of personality um you know i'm an enneagram three entj on myers-briggs which means you know i'm i'm i like to fix things i like to go at it and you know i think that maybe to take a step back 
you know, in the beginning, I mean, when, when I had nothing, I, you know, I joked at one time, we were the world's smallest family office. Um, you know, and it was just my capital that I compounded from taking out SBA loan and paying that off and sort of trying to, uh, claw and scrap, scrape to, to, to make, do the next deal. Um, you know, I had to be the, you know, to make me be making an analogy to like the kitchen, I had to be the line cook and the pastry chef and on the fryer and on the grill and all those things because, well, uh, no one else was going to do it. And, and as I did those things, you, you obviously develop skill and learn in those areas. And then, you know, if you're able to, to get, I wouldn't call it mastery, but a decent sense of, you know, how to operate the fryer, then you can hire somebody else who frankly can do a better job of operating the fryer. And maybe the fryer's a, bad analogy because I'm not sure how much skill there is in, in operating a fryer, but the, the areas that we're involved in, there's an incredible amount of opportunity for outperformance or underperformance. Um, it is a highly inefficient market. Um, and, and I love the definition of it, you know, efficiency being if you tried to lose money, could you? And the answer is in the public markets, uh, you could try to lose money, but I think you'd be pretty difficult. And you might end up making a bunch of money when you tried to lose money. Um, in the private markets, you could easily lose as much money as you wanted to as fast as you possibly could. Um, it's pretty easy, which just means there's a lot of room for um, doing things more correctly and, and outperforming. And I think that's one of the things I love about it. You know, in terms of how interventionalist I get now, um, I really try to work with the people um, you know, it's almost, gosh, in many situations now, it's kind of like three or four layers. So, it, you know, big, big problems will ultimately bubble up. But I often, you know, hear about them after the fact. And I'm, I'm really proud of the team. I mean, I'm not, gosh, I, I, am, I am damn near functionally useless these days, um, which is in some ways uh, encouraging and other ways discouraging. Um, it's beautiful that we've been able to build uh, a system and and bring in people and build a culture that performs without somebody kind of standing over it and really directing things. It's 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 also discouraging because I realize how uh, you know intellectually and skilled inferior I am to a lot of the people I work with, which is a which is a funny funny realization. Look, everyone who I directly work with, I, I try to be a support to them personally and professionally. Thank goodness they're a group of people who are on average, less messy, not perfect. We're all messy, but less messy. And then they're working with people who are probably a, a layer messier than them. And those are people who are working with a layer messier than those. But in, in the early days, I mean, I, I literally did drive somebody uh, to rehab. I literally did sit down with people and, and counsel them about, uh, you know, about stealing. I literally had to deal with a lot of that stuff myself. Um, and it, it builds a tremendous amount of empathy. Uh, if, you know, again, if you've never done something, everything appears easier, far easier than it actually is uh, when you've never done it. And so I think that one of the things that, you know, go back to a question you asked me a little while ago is like, you know, when people come and ask me for advice on how to build, you know, I want to build permanent equity, you know, myself. And I was like, great, have at it. Uh, it's super straightforward. Uh, it's just very hard. And they're like, okay, well, what do you mean it's hard? And I was like, go, go do, go work in a small business. A lot of people come are, are, finance people or come from a financial background. It's like, I'm telling you the best thing you could possibly do is go like grind in a small business for six months to 12 months. That would give you a sense of, of, of the brutality of the situation. And I've had a few people actually do that and they come back and they're like, Oh my gosh, I learned more in the first month than I'd learned in, you know, a two year MBA program and all my college. Why? It's because your, your, your nose is being forced into reality in a way that, um, it's just, it's very little other opportunities to, to really experience that. Do you miss those days when it was really hard and it was, you know, you hands on the wheel taking somebody to rehab or, or, and not to make, not to, not to continue to use that as, as a reference, but like, do you miss those days when it was kind of just you? Cause I can, I think you talked about having 
dinner with uh, Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger, and, and they talk a lot about the early days. I think you've, you've talked about reading Howard Marks and, and how it was those early letters. Um, you know, in music, like I end up really enjoying people's early works. And I find that like, I've got a great life now. I sometimes miss the pain. Well, maybe I'm, I'm fortunate or unfortunate how you depend on it. I mean, I think I still experience a, a decent amount of pain now. <laughs> Maybe that shows you how how um, messy <laughs> messy things are. Um, I think that the the pain that that I feel now is certainly different, and it's a different scale. But I mean, look, I've had to. This has been a this has been a tough thing for me to adjust to. To be honest with you, um, the scale that we're at now, there is always somebody who's getting cancer. And there's always somebody who's child sick and there's always some big loss, you know, some competitor that came in and stole something or some big client loss or, um, you know, something's gone terribly, terribly wrong. And, you know, I want to know the hard things I want to work. I mean, I I don't want us to run away from reality. I want us to run towards reality. I want us to run towards problems. And so if, if I'm going to create a, a culture of, of, of people and and a group of people who want to run towards things, I have to run towards them. And so, you know, I encourage, encourage people to share, share challenging news. And, and, and oftentimes what it looks like is, Hey, I just want to let you know, this thing happened and here's how we're dealing with it. And I say, man, I'm so sorry. That's really tough. My instinct is to want to jump in, but it's already been solved. And honestly, it's been solved better than I could. There are certain things. And, and honestly, it's, it's tough to say this. There, there are things quite often that, um, uh, rise to my level and that I am actually directly getting involved in and, and helping fix just because look like, we're all in this thing together and, uh, that does scale the level that I'm at. It does scale for where we are now, but it won't scale in five years. And I think that's where, you know, somebody said, don't meet problems halfway. Also don't scale out of the the position you're in. Like, uh, yes, could I try to insulate myself from everything and try to just, I don't know what real investors do for a living, but think great thoughts and just, you know, read, read literature and, uh, you know, smoke cigars all day. I don't know what you're supposed to do if you're a real investor, but I never considered ourselves an investor. I, I, I consider myself an operator, an entrepreneur and, and what entrepreneurs and operators do is they get in the mud and they, and they throw elbows and, and try to get stuff done. And, um, you know, we want to have a, a, a blue collar mentality like that at permanent equity and never want to lose that. And so, you know, I always want to find problems to solve. I always want to find, you know, I, I, you know, problems are always opportunities. And so what's the opportunity to, to make things better. And sometimes it's not better for us. Sometimes it's just better for the, the people that are involved in it. And, and we're doing it because it's our duty to do it. And uh, our job is not for people to serve us. It's for us to serve them. The topic of, of, of being an investor that that's hand off, hands off, um, as, as kind of juxtaposed with the operator who's, who's in it. We've talked about something that you've you've um, originated some thoughts around. There's being this third vector of, of the deal making. Um, would you would you mind kind of like I don't know introducing that that concept and maybe maybe talking a little bit about how you've come to think about the role of deal making and what it is, what it isn't. You know, I think that that typically the world is framed in, at least in the investing world between sort of operating and investing as the two kind of poles. And, um, you know, Buffett's famous for saying I'm a better investor because I'm an operator and I'm a better operator because I'm an investor. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, when I think of the investing world, I think of making sort of wise financial decisions with sort of Bayesian updated thinking, sometimes it's in spreadsheets. Oftentimes for me, it's a back of a napkin or on a 
piece of paper because I can barely open up Excel, let alone build any models myself. When I think of investing as a, as a you know, sort of pure practice, it is a lot around making good decisions with how to allocate capital to the right people at the right time with the right liquidity, making sure that you're underwriting the asset uh, thoroughly and properly. Operating is, okay, so now you have an asset. What do you do with it? So you maybe you made the decision to enter the asset for a period of time. You own it. You are the beneficiary of the equity proceeds of that, um, separate from sort of the, the layer, if any, of, of, of debt that sits on top of you. How, what do you do with the asset? Like, how do you improve it? And look, somebody's got to do the work. So, um, you know, when I think of good operators, I think of people who are, okay, what's the vision for the future of the company? What are the, you know, SWOT analysis on it? What, where are we going with the company? How, who needs to get on the bus and go for the ride with us? What talents are we missing? Um, what risks are we mitigating? What, uh, what upside projects are we, are we pursuing? And of course there's a, this is the Buffett thing comes in. It's like, there's an asset allocation investment decision matrix that you have to go through on the operating side as well which is okay if you have a list of projects okay which projects get the resources well that's kind of an investment decision but it's it's very much hitched to the operating uh, prowess of the team and the situation amongst the you know amongst the team of talent and time and purpose and emotional energy and all these things that kind of come into play so you know it, very much the the investing in the operating polls I, you know I totally understand why those that's kind of the framework I have just noticed there's this third thing that's really an independent skill set from both of those, which is um, look in my business, and I get I get jealous of my peers that are in the in the public market sometimes because they can you know poke a button and buy and poke a button and sell. Um, I uh, I don't have that luxury. Um, you know, obviously liquidity in, in my area of the market is uh, uh, scant to say the least. So um, it requires this kind of third skill set, which, you know, I, I thought about as kind of being independent from from investing in and operating, which is the deal making and deal making is looking at a variety of interests and 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 the uniqueness of a situation and trying to craft an arrangement that fits the both the parties needs as closely as you can. And this really gets into, you know, negotiation theory and, you know, a sort of integrative negotiations. You know, what are people's posturing versus their actual interests? How do people weight different things? I mean, this is this is the beauty of investing and, and the, really the beauty and the spice of the world is we, we all have different preferences. And so everyone's acting rationally in the moment in alignment with their preferences. Now, somebody independently may say that's that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but like how important is it? I mean, I maybe ask you, Thomas, if you if you had a diagnosis of cancer and you had a year to live and you owned a $20 million free cash flow business, would that change the way you behaved that year from a year when you thought you were going to live for another 30, 40 years? I would expect so. I right? think it would. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so obviously that's an extreme, but like take that, ex take that from the extreme and let's say that you, you know, you've had some health issues, which by the way, this is a common theme in, in some of the business we buy, maybe some health issues or your friend has had health issues and you're 62 years old and you're sort of, you know, look, your body's uh, wearing out. You can at least, you know, feel it wearing out and you say, okay, look, I can stay in this business for another 15 years and I can make a bunch more money, but I already have a lot of money. And like, I don't really, you know, yes, it's important to be treated fairly, but like how I weight the importance of the money that I'd make in the future versus the ability to go and do other things and have the people around me that I have worked my whole life with to build something taken care of, like the, everyone's going to weight that a little bit differently. 
And so this is where the deal making aspect comes into it is, is, okay, what are, what are my interests and what are my firm's interests and what are my team's interests and what are my investors' interests and what are the interests of all the stakeholders, the employees, the leadership teams, the seller, the um, customers of the business, the suppliers of the business, the local community, potentially regulators, right? These are all these different stakeholders. And then you've got to basically enter into a negotiation to make the deal happen where you're trying to serve as many interests as you possibly can and get the pieces of the puzzle to lock in and fit together to make the deal happen. And, and look, the, the, the art of it is I used to do, I used to think that the way to go about this was to create really complex, um, deals. So, you know, we're going to do this feature and that feature, and we're going to do a, you know, exploding seven year note with, you know, adjustable interest based on this and this and this. And, you know, if, if revenue hits this number, then we're going to adjust this over here. And, and look, it, it, it was an attempt to try to, to try to make the deal happen and try to, you know, have everyone's interest. I've learned that complexity is a deal killer. I mean, time's a deal killer, complexity is a deal killer. So the, really the, the beauty of it is, can you create a deal that works for everyone that takes everyone's interest into account. And can you make it as simple as possible? That's the beauty. And that's, I mean, honestly, it's, I think it's the hardest game in the world. Like it's a game that keeps me, you know, it, it perpetually engaged because I, I can't think of a harder game. I mean, every situation's unique. Every personality is different. All the players and how their personalities interact with each other are different. How everyone weights, everything is different. Um, it's a, it's a really, it's, it's, it's incredibly complex and engaging game. And I think that's where the deal making as a skill is, is not investing because, because you know, what kind of like what you want to pay and you know how you want to allocate resources and it's not operating. It's not about how, what do you do with the asset? Although that's taken into account, it's kind of like this third leg of the stool that at least in, in my area of the market, um, when, when there's a highly inefficient market with lacking liquidity is just a key component. I don't think it gets talked about much. When you're trying to, to to build the deal, how much do you open this process up to the participants? Because I feel like if if you if you are able to facilitate conversation and get everyone around the table, um, or at least maybe you become the table that they kind of talk through, that you can perhaps get there um, quicker and with more certainty. Um, is this something that you can build in open or is it something that just given the competitive nature of, of, of investing that this is something that you have to do kind of internally? Well, I would say there's no con- competitive concerns. Um, I mean, the tools that we have in our toolbox are, are, are not unique to us. I mean, everyone has the same access to the tools, right? Um, there's really, uh, I wouldn't say there's any tricks of the trade by any means. I mean, certainly the application of those is where the wisdom comes in. Um, so it's not a matter of like competitive pressure or anything like that, or, or being secretive. I would say, um, we want to be highly collaborative when we're in negotiations, uh, when we're trying to make a deal happen. We want to talk openly with people about our interests and, and why we're thinking the way we do. Um, we want them to talk openly and, and again, try to drop as much of the masks as we possibly can. The problem is, just to be frank, I mean, this sounds all in theory beautiful, right? Um, <laughs> oftentimes people will uh, reflect not what they really want, but what their advisors are telling they should want. Yes. So when you think about the advisory services around making a deal happen in let's call it the lower middle market, right? Kind of companies between 3 million in free cash flow and 25 million on the high end, kind of like the lower end of the lower middle market. 
they typically will have a financial advisor, a lawyer, and and most often some sort of intermediary banker or broker involved. All of those people have very different interests, very, very different interests, right? Um, the financial advisor wants to make sure that they get access and, and be able to keep the sort of AUM of the client underneath them. Um, they may be excited about the liquidity um, and they want that that client to say, well, wow, that person was really value additive, right? So we got, I got to show them some action. The lawyer uh, has basically zero tolerance for risk um, and is paid to reduce risk at all costs, even if it means killing the deal or slowing the deal down or doing doing something that's harmful to the parties post-close. As long as they can point to um, that they reduced risk, they, they did their job in their mind. And of course, they're paid by the hour, right? So there's some some incentives there. And then the, the the broker intermediary typically is paid a success fee. So they're incentivized to get a deal done really at all costs and as high of a dollar amount as they possibly can. And then you've got a you've got a, the seller who has, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of relationships of people in this company that they've built. Um, they have a family they're thinking about. They have their own personal desires and hopes and dreams. Um, they're trying to think about the, you know, what they're standing in their industry is. They're thinking about how they're going to spend their time. And you sort of put all those things into a bag and you, you, you mix it up. And man, it is explosive. It is hard. And so oftentimes we'll get... Uh, in the deal making process, we'll get we'll get a lot of mixed signaling, and we'll we'll try to get around it by by saying stuff like, "Hey, if you know if you had the magic wand, like you can wave it, you can design the perfect scenario. We're like, what does this look like for you?" And it's so funny because if we ask that question to some people, they'll answer very differently if we ask it twice. Because it's like once they're going through like the rehearse, like, "Okay, the banker told me I need to emphasize this, and my lawyer told me I need to say this, and my you know my financial advisor, and oh by the way, my wife and my kids and you know my coworker and my partner and you know." They have all these different voices in their head and it's really difficult. You just have to spend time with people to really get down to what do they value and how do they value it? And it just takes time, it takes time and it takes skill to ask the right questions at the right time. And, and that's where it's like, you know, anybody who says, Hey, by the way, my plan is I'm going to go buy a business. I'm going to buy three more businesses. I'm going to create a hold co and, uh, and then we're going to live happily ever after. I'm like, Hey, amen. Like you go, you go do that. And, and by the way, in three years you come back and, and, and we can talk about like how that's worked out. Cause it's gonna be hard, so hard. It's not a matter of like, there's not, there's <laughs> again, there's no secrets. It's like, they can know anything they want to know. I'll answer, you know, how, how, how you, you know, how do you do a negotiation? Well, it's super straightforward. It's how everyone else does a negotiation, right? It's like the, the, the nuances in how you treat the people, the questions you ask, and it, it's all wisdom based. And unfortunately there's no substitute for, uh, well, experience. And, yeah. uh, now that I'm, now that I'm in middle age, uh, or at least close to middle age, I can say stuff like that. And all those damn young whippersnappers out there, <laughs> I, you know, I used to be the get off my lawn. Uh, I used to be the, uh, I used to be the young guy. And apparently, uh, that happened to switch recently. Cause I've, 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 uh, I've been signaled to that. I'm apparently no longer young. So, um, which is nice, kind of nice. We all face it. How, how, how often, um, does the deal that you think you're building end up being the deal that 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 crosses the finish line i would imagine that as you as you build those assessments that your realization about what really matters to everyone evolves um i i just and i i think that one of the one of the one of the areas in my life that i'd like to improve is uh is 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 my memory and my sense of what was and and whether it actually was um like for instance, the best investment that we ever made in my former fund 
was uh, the seed round of Tegas, which I think was a 300x. Why did we invest in Tegas? Because we thought they were probably going to go bankrupt and we wanted to uh, secure a most favored nations clause that would protect us when they raised prices to avoid running out of money. And so, yes, it was a great investment. We made it for the absolute like wrong reasons. And, and, and so I'm trying to get better at um, bringing some, 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 some truth to my reflection on what, what was and what is. So when you're going through and, and trying to understand what's important to everyone and, and how all this can work and that, and that evolves, it, it kind of, it kind of reminds me of just like a variety of problems that I have in life where, um, you know, tell me a problem that you have and then, and then, you know, come back in a week and, and let me know if it's, it's still an issue. Like the, the world moves in ways that like, I just, I think I understand, but quite candidly, like I just, I don't. And that's probably another reflection on getting a little bit older, but how do you, how do you, how do you kind of, um, from like almost a data perspective, is there, is there a way that you can, um, input like where you think that something is and then, and then, and then circle back to find out where it, where it actually ended up? Well, I, so it's a, it's a really interesting challenge. I, I would say, look, the, the world is unpredictable. It's the future is uh, unknown and largely unknowable. Um, so all that to caveat and say the advantage that, that our area of the market has is cash doesn't lie. So we, we, we very much pay attention. We could care less about the EBITDA number and what the, is in the sell side Q of E that we get and all these, you know, Hey, here's, here's what, here's what we say. Reality is what we look at is cash, how much cash is coming in, how much cash is leaving and how much cash is left over, uh, after those two things happen. And if you look at a company that has a, you know, 30 year track record and there's a 30 year track record of, um, cash coming in, cash leaving, and and cash being left over in the form of profits, um, then they're doing something that is inherently valuable, right? Um, like they're, they're able to sustain some competitive advantage. So the question is not, if, if we get it involved in a company, do they have a competitive advantage? The question is, where does the competitive advantage lie? And how strong is it? And, and, and who's in control of that competitive advantage? And so... How we make decisions, I mean, obviously I'm using strictly financial terms to describe obviously a very uh, a very complicated situation, but what we're trying to figure out is why is the reality the way it is? Because we know what reality is. We know that they make they make money. We know that there's some way that they're creating value for their customers. There's, there's a way that they're um, sharing in that value creation. And then it's really, it's like a detective's case of like, okay, wh- wh- how, how can we diagnose w- what the causes of that are and, and sort of what's the magic combination of things? Because I agree, like you said, hey, you know, if you have a problem, ask me in a week if you have the same problem, tell me in a week if you have the same problem. Like, it's true, like the world moves in ways that are, that are unpredictable, but, but there are some things when you add up the sort of aggregation of a bunch of the ways it moves that, that feel more predictable. And so, um, we try to, and this is, I mean, sort of a high humility view towards investing. Um, the humility comes in in the price we pay 
So if you pay less, you're you're assuming uh, more margin of safety. You're assuming that there could be more things that go wrong. And we've done this long enough where um, we we know that we're going to buy into a bunch of problems. Like we know that there's a bunch of problems. The only question is what problems are going to present themselves and how bad are they really going to be? Um, another form of humility is in a lack of debt. So we, we typically use no debt in our transactions. Um, so we're not taking out a big loan on behalf of the company that we're buying and using that to fund the transaction, which is, you know, sort of par for the course, um, in could traditional you, private could equity. Could you actually elaborate on, on what it means to not have debt? Because I think, I think a lot of people, myself included, will, will kind of just go straight to the, the financial leverage and, it, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a conversation about, about numbers. Um, but I, I know that personally, when I feel like I have a debt service payment, like whether monetary or not, it it affects my decision making in a way that has far more implications beyond like, could I make that payment? Um, I just like, I, I think that this is probably something that you've given some real thought to because on paper, like we should all carry maximum leverage, but it's sort of like a Morgan Housel Yes, it might be uh, 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 rational to do that, um, but it's not reasonable for us as humans that make decisions in real time. Yeah, well, I would say our view on debt is it's it's actually neither rational nor reasonable in our area of the market. And what I'm going to say is I'm going to I'm going to say a, a, a something about our area of the market, which is look, these companies are all of them. Every company that's a small company, and even most of the big companies, but really small companies especially, are loosely functioning disasters that happen to make money. So, like, let's just start from that from that baseline. And I think it's kind of true for people's lives too. Like, every every person's life, certainly mine, at 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 many times, and even maybe even recently at times, I have days where I feel like a loosely functioning disaster. I guess that happens to make money, thankfully. Um, so if you start from that perspective, then you say, okay, what are we doing when we layer in debt? And obviously we're just talking about financial debt right now. There's a lot of forms of debt. There's, there's relational debt, there's technology debt, there's human capital debt. I mean, there's all these things that are, there are forms of debt, but let's just talk about financial debt because that's the obvious one. And it's, it's sort of black and white, you know, debt is not a source of alpha. Debt is an amplification of returns. So you, 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 you can take a good situation and make it much better with debt. Um, but you can take a good situation and make it much worse with debt as well. Um, and it depends on, there's a very fine line between which direction that tips and and doesn't, but debt always removes freedom. Like, you know, you don't, you don't, you're not more free as a company and you're certainly not more free as an individual when you're indebted, uh, to somebody or to something. And so, um, I even think about the life philosophy even beyond like the financial debt of a company, but like, you know, I know people, and I would say in my life, I've been indebted to alcohol at various points in my life. What does that mean? It means that I, I feel beholden to it. I feel like that I, uh, am using the alcohol, uh, in a way that is, is probably unhealthy. Um, it may feel healthy at the time and it may help me cope with something that's going on, but, but long-term, I know that I'm racking up a debt there that my, my body and my mind and potentially my soul may have to answer for later. I think the companies are the exact same way. Like if you look at, at, at putting debt on a, on a loosely functioning disaster, you're, you're, you're taking an already volatile situation and you're making it far more volatile. And you're taking away all the optionality of that business to get through hard times, to reinvest in its people, to make good long-term decisions. Um, you're taking away the flexibility. And I, and I would say a good example of this, I mean, let's get, you know, get in real terms is, you know, um, COVID hits 
and we had just bought an aerospace business. Bad timing, right? And you would think that that's a disaster. And by the way, if we had used even half of normalized debt in a transaction like that, because it was a big balance sheet, we had lots of assets, we could have levered that thing to the moon, could have put in almost no equity into that deal uh, if we had wanted to. But look, that company would have gone uh, bust and, and it wouldn't have gone bust just, just because, you know, it would have gone into receivership or we wouldn't have been able to work out something with the bank or we couldn't have backstopped it. But the amount of headache and heartache and disruption would have been extreme. It would have been a complete take the eye off the ball uh, of an already difficult situation and make it far worse. And instead we had this beautiful situation happen, which is we were like literally probably the only transacted upon company in the aerospace business that wasn't carrying debt and a lot of it. So what did that allow us to do? It allowed us to hire people who were getting laid off at all these companies that were amazing talent. They just had to, they had to do headcount reductions because they couldn't make the payments to the bank. And, and basically the bank was dictating how the company was being run. We were able to reinvest back into technology. We implemented a new ERP system. We went out and hired aggressively overseas to expand our footprint. All of this is, is of course, reducing down you know, in an already depressed bottom line, but we knew the investments would be worthwhile to, to really gain on the backside. And now we're starting to see the fruits of that. I mean, still not a great environment for, for aerospace, but I got to tell you, I think the company, if you'd run the comparison of, okay, if we use max leverage and we had somehow gotten, you know, uh, uh, gotten the bank to go along and sort of give us you know, some extensions and things and worked it out with us, I still think that, that the return on invested capital would be higher. Our IRR would be hap- higher as a result of not using debt in that deal than, than if we use debt, even knowing what everything we know now, like far higher because we were able to make the investments when the investments needed to be made and when we could get them at the right price. And I think that's the thing most people don't understand about using financial leverage is it's removing your optionality to do the right thing in the moment that you know is the right thing, but you can't do it because you're beholden to somebody else. I love that. One of one of the sayings that I've been using a lot, and apologies if people start to get sick of it, um, but I, I say it to myself every single day is never trade something you need for something that you want. And in this situation, like it, it really, it seems that having having that that structural awareness, that that practice, um, allowed you to grow the intrinsic value of this business when the alternate scenario would have been a zero. And and again, like. It's yes, the financial implications of that, but it's also just the, the the human life kind of tragedy of of what of what could have been. So that's really cool. Probably the last question that I, I wanted to ask is your life to date is you've you gotta be pretty proud, man. I mean, I, I know that you are um and when I say proud, it's grateful. Like there is a like me, a, a, an awareness within you of like, wow, like I I'm building something that I'm proud of. And in the way that I asked, like, you know, do you, do you miss some of those early days that do you, do you miss the, the, the times when you didn't, we didn't have, you didn't have money where you didn't have people knocking down your door to give you functionally infinite, um, uh, time duration capital. You, you, you catch a tiger by the tail and sitting and just relishing in that experience. Like that's, that's not going to build satisfaction. So what over the next I don't know how you think about goal setting and directions that you want to paddle towards, but what are you thinking about from a, like a, a life lived backwards that you want to aim for in the, in the second half of, of your life? Well, I, 
I'm going to start with something my my business partner and, and great friend Patrick O'Shaughnessy taught me. Gosh, I don't know when we first got together, however many years ago that was. And he, yeah, I asked him, man, what are your goals? And I'm like, look, I'm like I said, I'm like a very goal driven, like uh, very type A type personality. So I always had like a, you know, I'm I'm going here, I'm going to do these things, you know, make these plans. And he said, man, I I've, I have growth without goals. Is what he how he described it. And I think he actually written a whole piece on, on what he means by that. And I, I really didn't understand it at the time. Uh, it's taken me a long time and actually I probably should, maybe he'll listen to this. I don't know if he will or not, but I should probably tell him this, but like how grateful I am of that example that he, he gave me because I, it really broke a lot of paradigms for me. Um, I don't have goals, um, anymore. I mean, there are things that, that I feel like God lays on my heart that, that I should go and pursue. Um, but I mean, I really do feel like that. I want to get perspective. Um, what is the game that I'm trying to win at? What is the, what is the the game that I'm playing? And yes, there is, there's money to be made and there's things to be done and things to be accomplished. Um, what I, what I most want to do in, in this half of my life is to love people well. And I say that that sounds like so woo woo garbage. Like it's, I, I hate, I hate that that's the sort of the connotation. When I say love people well, that doesn't mean be soft. That doesn't mean be, um, you know, it, it means the exact opposite of that. In fact, it means to be, speak, people, speak to truth to people in love, um, to give them a lot of grace to, to, to show and, and be empathetic, um, uh, to, to them. And, um, you know, my life is, is a, is a trophy of grace. I mean, I look at the, the, the wife I have and I don't deserve her. And, and I, it doesn't really make sense that we're married. And I look at the children that I have and like, I, I, I don't quite get it. Um, I look at the business that, that, that I've been given to steward and I know I couldn't have built this thing myself. Uh, and of course I didn't, you know, even build it myself. There's a lot of other people involved, but I'm saying is like, I don't know why I ended up in the position I'm in other than, you know, I, I believe truly believe that, that God has a, a, a way better plan for my life than I have for it. And so I'm just trying to, to, to live into the path that, that he really wants me to walk. And that sounds like maybe if you don't understand what I'm saying, that sounds very boring or like, Oh gosh, like that doesn't sound like a fun thing at all. It's, it's, it's wild. Like God is wild, man. God, God, God is not a tame, tame God. Like he, he is, he is the, the God of Isaac and Jacob and, and, uh, he's very much the old Testament and the new Testament. And, um, it is, it is a wild life that I have, have learned to give up control more and more. And I mean, this is a fight that I have every day. This is the battle for my soul is I desperately want to hold everything tight. I desperately want a white knuckle life. And, um, if I look back on the last really, I mean, last 10, 15 years, it has been a beautiful, wonderful ride. And I've been given way more than I could have ever expected. And I've been given health and I've been given beauty, not beauty physically for me. I have a face for radio, but beauty in my life and beauty that I've seen. And it's been this just gorgeous experience that frankly, I haven't enjoyed nearly as much as I should have. And that's something I want to learn from you more honestly. I mean, the time that we spend together, like you just radiate joy and appreciation and gratitude. And that's something that I, um, I have not done. You know, I, I have been, uh, I have been driving towards a goal that I didn't even know I had. And I think that goal had been in the past to, to make as much of me as I possibly could. And I know that ends in death. And so the next phase of my life and, and really where I've, I hope I've arrived here, you know, uh, at least partially there now is to just really enjoy the life that I've been given and to steward the resources well and steward the relationships well and, and, and be a good and faithful servant. And 
I, I think it's wild. Like I, I, the more I, I let go of the wheel, uh, the more I, you know, I wear this world loosely as a garment, the more that God opens up these crazy doors to step through and, and really, uh, help, help, help people, um, uh, serve people, love people. And in my life is, is infinitely richer as a result of that. So that's probably not the result that you're supposed to talk about on a, on a, you know, podcast like this, but that's the truth. And, and, uh, I'm really excited about it. No, I think, I think growth without goals is, um, is a really wonderful way to put it. Um, and I appreciate the, the kind words on my approach to joy. There, there is actually a story there. Um, so when I was in college, uh, I'm sorry, when I was in high school, I, um, I was a really self-conscious kid. I was a really overweight kid. I, I had a lot of, um, I don't know, reasons to, 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 to think that, that I was, I was getting the, the short end of, of sticks. Um, and, uh, and there were, so there were a lot of people in my school that I really didn't like. And, uh, one of the guys that I didn't like ended up going to the same college as, as me. And, um, and he's kind of a bully. Like he kind of picked on me a little bit early in college and, I was, I was trying to become a new person and, and that, and <laughs> that made it a little bit, a little bit harder. Um, and then I, I got it, I got an invitation to join what I thought was like the coolest fraternity. So I'm thinking, Oh, this is great. Like I'm making this progress. And, uh, and that guy, that same guy, he, he joined the, the, the fraternity that I was getting into as well. And I was like, Oh damn it. Like what this guy just like, he's going to just be an asshole to me. Uh, through, throughout this experience. And, and, you know, in, in truth, like he, he kind of was um, by the end of college, you know, four years later, like we, we had like a fairly amicable relationship. Um, but I, I still just, I really didn't like him. Like I, I thought he was a jerk. I thought, I just thought that he lacked um, a kind bone in his body. Um, and then after college, he, uh, uh, we were at a, we were at a wedding together and after several drinks, we were, we were sitting at the same table. Um, and he said, Thomas, how do you do it? How are you so nice to everyone? I have to try so damn hard to be nice and it just comes easy to you. And I realized in that moment that all the time that I thought that he was the jerk, like maybe it was actually me. Like maybe, maybe this thing that came naturally to me didn't come so naturally to him. And, and I had maybe been looking at it wrong. And so once I realized that, that I, I had an ability to just sustain this kind of joyful, like, wow, this is so cool mindset. Um, I, 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 I started to take that gift more seriously and it's something that that I've I've put a lot of thought into from an investing perspective. I've put a lot of thought into from like a a, a volunteering point of view, um, mentoring. It's something that I I try to take seriously because, like one of the one of the thoughts that I have, you know, at the end of at the end of life when when I'm you know having a conversation of at least in my mind a, a conversation with with my creator and and. Uh, and there's this uh, moment where like, okay, Thomas, here are the gifts that I gave you. Um, what'd you do with them? And when, when it gets put to me, like you were just naturally like a pretty uh, uh, outgoing, joyful person. Like, what did you do with that? What, how did you put work? How did you put wood behind that arrow? 
and I don't want to have like I, I want to ha- I don't want to have a, a weak answer to that. And so it's it's something that I'm I'm working on. I I, I have to figure out. I was I was talking to to Dan McMurtry. He was he was giving me some good advice on this. Uh, he said, Thomas, there's no doubt that your approach of bringing optimism to everything is is the right one. You just have to be mindful of when and how much. And so there's work associated here. Um, I'm on a journey with it. Um, it helps a lot when I have somebody like you that I respect say, say, say nice stuff. It, it, it shows me that like, I, I need to continue this journey. And um, yeah, so thank you. And, and we'll work, we'll, uh, we'll work, we'll work on this one together. You can, you can, you can make me a, a more aware uh, investor, operator, deal maker, and um, I'll, fi- I'll, I'll, f- I'll figure out some ways to, uh, to help, uh, help every day uh, just taste a, taste a little bit sweeter because um, it's a good life that we get to live. And amen, brother. It's been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for having me on. Cool. Absolutely. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Unlimited Partners production. The show is edited and produced by Andrew Thomas, and our music was composed by Nick Samaska. If you'd like to learn more about sponsoring Unlimited Partners, then please say hi. Email us at sponsor at up-pod.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys next week.